Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And we have a very special guest on our podcast today, Perth Toll. Perth is the founder of the Life Liberty Index and the Freedom ETF. Perth was all set to begin law school before taking a detour through San Francisco. She was armed only with an address that she'd committed to memory. And her goal was to reconnect with her father that she hadn't seen in over a decade. Shortly thereafter, Perth was boarding a plane to Hong Kong. Destiny. That's Perth Toll. Never afraid to do the hard thing, as long as she's sure it's the right thing. So let's get started and let's talk freedom with Perth Toll. James Werner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning and thank you for joining us, Perth. Let's start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and the origin story of the Life Liberty Index. Sure. Thanks for having me. So I grew up in both China and the U.S. and... uh... After college, I went back and lived in Hong Kong for about a year. We traveled throughout China to, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, the mainland cities. And I saw some things that made me realize that freedom not only had an impact on my life, but also had an impact on the markets in these places. So you were born in Beijing, correct? I was born in Beijing. And then I came and to the U.S. Moved, moved to the U.S. at what, about age nine? Around age nine. And I lived in Texas and went to school in Texas. And then after college, went and lived in Hong Kong. What's your most vivid memory of your childhood in, in China? What, what was it like? <laughs> so there's a lot of school. We went to school like six days a week. I do have some memories of my early childhood. My grandfather was in the army in the war. And his life was saved by a missionary doctor from the U.S. And he had this doctor's bust. It was like a famous doctor or something. And he had Uh this doctor's bust on top of his shelf in the library in his study. So one day as a child, I was probably four or five, I went in there and I took a book off the shelf in this library. And I remember the beginning of it was a story about these two people in a garden. And then I remember my grandmother saw that I had that book got super mad at my grandfather for letting me access it and just having it around. And then I never saw it again. So that's probably like one of my first memories from growing up. Your your first memory of censorship? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So apparently that was a sensitive thing to have there. And I also remember adults saying things like, oh, don't say that. Don't tell anyone we said that or don't say that at school because people are watching. You don't want to be saying anything politically sensitive. My grandmother was very... In her heart, I had very negative feelings towards the Cultural Revolution, towards Mao, because she lost a son in the Cultural Revolution, my uncle. And all the kids were sent to the countryside to work on rural farms. There was no hospital nearby, this one farm, where her son was, my uncle, who was 19 at the time. He was bitten by a snake, and they tried to take him to the hospital, but they couldn't make it in time. Because he had been sent to the farm and bitten by the snake where they were far away from hospitals, he died. So my grandmother 
would say very mean things about Mel and things like that. And she's gone now, so we can talk about this. <laughs> but make sure to let you know that yes. those were the only things you spoke about at home. Yes. So those are some things I remember. And then I also remember just being almost like a celebrity at school, just because my parents were in the United States. And my dad was here going to grad school. And my mom did the same shortly after he did. And I lived with my grandparents from the age I was four until I was nine. And But people, I think, expected me to eventually come to the United States. And the sentiment toward the United States was very good. And I remember a teacher saying it was how beautiful it was in the United States. In fact, the, the word for the U.S. in Chinese means beautiful country. The sentiment at that time was very good, very open toward foreigners, toward the West, as I recall. And now, of course, it's not the same. It's more negative. But it wasn't always that way. So you graduated from... Trinity in what, 2002, roughly? And then you shortly thereafter went back to Hong Kong. Yes. Was that always the plan or was that a decision you made kind of on the fly? What made you go back to Hong Kong? That was not the plan. I had planned to go to law school like most kids who finish college and don't know what to do with their lives. I had a finance degree and I was interested in finance and marketing and and advertising. And and I had gone to art school in the summer before senior year, but my junior year is when um, 9-11 happened. And after 9-11 happened, I decided not to pursue advertising because that was a time when all the companies were slashing their advertising budgets. I was, after all, a pragmatist. And so I was like, okay, fine. (laughs) Um, And then that's how I started pursuing the law school route. And I had a, a half scholarship to attend SMU law school in Dallas, where it's my hometown. So I always wanted to go to SMU. And so that was what I wanted. The summer before law school started, I went on a couple of mission trips with some friends and led a girls group from our church in Dallas to a mission trip in Tijuana. After that mission trip, me and the guy counselors, we were all friends. We drove up to San Francisco to visit friends in San Francisco. And my dad wasn't around when I was growing up, but I always wanted to meet him. I was always looking for him. And I had his address, which was in Danville in the San Francisco area, in my head memorized. So we weren't talking then. We hadn't spoken in you know, like 10 years. And I drove, I, you know, when we rented a car. It was a, I remember it was a Prius and I drove to his address and I found him. <laughs> so, oh, wow. and he was living in Hong Kong. He was only there for like the weekend. At the time, they were there escaping SARS, and he was only there for the remainder of, the, of that weekend. So, four more days at the time that I found. And so, him. no, no contact before you before you pulled into the drive in the in the Prius. So it was just yeah. kismet that he happened to be there. It actually, I actually pulled into the wrong house. There was a house across the street from him, and there was a green Range Rover in front of that house. And I was looking at that. I was like, that doesn't seem like that was not the car I pictured my dad to have. And it turned out being the wrong house. And the lady at that house told me, hey, there's a Chinese family that lives right across from me. They're here visiting from Hong Kong. They're only, but they live in Hong Kong. Could that be them? And that's how I found my dad. And, um, And he, 15 minutes into the conversation, said, you don't want to go to law school. You want to come to Hong Kong and live with me. (laughs) <laughs> and that's how I ended up in Hong Kong. I left, I told SMU, hey, I'm not coming anymore. And I just went to Hong Kong because all my life, that's what I wanted is my dad. So that's wow. how I ended up there. I've never told the story. You weren't so much reconnecting. You weren't so much reconnecting with your home country. You were reconnecting with your father. That's what I was doing. Yeah. yeah. And so you traveled around uh, China for, in and around China for about a year. Mm-hmm. And 
how did the country compare to you as an adult versus the country you left when you were a child? It had grown so much since I left it. I left in December of 1988. 1989, of course, was Tiananmen. And then when I went back, it was 2003. So just like a different country, just completely changed. And it, actually, if I had gone a year previous or a year after, it would have been completely different as well because it was growing that fast. And there was a lot of tremendous growth in China over the past 30 or 40 years. And that was due to an opening up of their economic freedoms, economic policies that went from the abysmal policies under Mao, where millions of people, tens, hundreds of millions of people died in famine and other causes like my uncle, to not so bad policies. And that slight improvement in economic policies led to this drastic growth and that was extremely good for the country and for the Chinese people. Yeah, sometimes a little bit of freedom can go a long way. Absolutely, especially if you're coming from a very low base like that. And usually that's what causes these developing countries to become developed countries. And usually, historically speaking, it has led to an increase in other freedoms, like personal freedoms. But in China, that hasn't been the case. And now we're seeing kind of a pendulum swing in the opposite direction. So, Yeah. Yeah. And so then... You- Around 2004, you decided to move back to the States? Yes. So I came back to the U.S. after my time in Hong Kong and China, and I ended up working at Fidelity for 10 years after that as a financial advisor. And I had clients who were similar to me. They wanted to invest in emerging markets. Well, first, when I came back in 2003, everyone wanted to invest in China. And I was like, you guys don't have any idea what you're actually investing in. But that's what everyone wanted. That was a hot thing at the time. And then a lot of people also, like me, wanted emerging markets because emerging markets was doing great at that time. It was like outperforming hands down every other asset class. But that's what everyone wanted at the time. And some clients who were similar to me who wanted emerging markets but didn't want to participate in some of the human rights atrocities that a lot of these markets were were doing in a lot of these autocracies like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, they're the people who helped me to solidify this idea of freedom waiting instead of market capitalization waiting. Because with market capitalization waiting, you get so much autocracy exposure just because of the nature of emerging markets. A lot of them are autocracies and a lot of them are just coming out of autocracies. So with market capitalization waiting, you end up with about half of your fund, 50%, in autocracies like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Turkey. And about 40% of that is in China alone. And so that's a lot of concentration risk. So that's the reason why we created the, the Freedom 100 strategy. When you started your, your career as a financial advisor or account executive or whatever Fidelity called it in those days, <laughs> you had clients that actually came from Russia that would tell you, invest my money anywhere you want, but don't invest it in Russia. Yep. There was this... <laughs> Instead of the home country bias we see in the U.S., it was the opposite, right? It was the exact opposite of home country bias, yes. (laughs) My Russian client actually said to me, investing in Russia would be like funding terrorism. So that's how he felt about it. That's something you have to write down on the risk tolerance. uh, (laughs) 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 So let's fast forward 10 years. You're a successful advisor. You've got what, probably a two-year-old. Yep. In the house. Three-year-old. Not the textbook scenario for leaving a career and starting a, a new enterprise. What? Take us through that decision. What? When did you decide to make the leap? Yeah. So this is an idea that pummeled me for a long time. I think it started really solidifying in my mind when I was gone on maternity leave from Fidelity, when I had the baby. And I wanted to do it then. 
but I still didn't know enough to, to know how to, you know, start an index, how to do all an ETF, all of this stuff. And I chickened out and that was in California. And then I came back to Fidelity when we moved to Texas and went into the, the Houston branches here. And I was here for about a year when I realized I was like, well, after you have a kid, it kind of makes you reevaluate your life decisions. Right. <laughs> and I decided sure. that I, if I was going to be away from my child at work, it would have to be something that was like definitely what I felt was my purpose to do. And this was something that an idea that would not leave me alone. And it just kept popping up. And eventually I realized that I would rather fail at attempting to do this than, than not try at all. And yes, I had a successful career at Fidelity and I loved Fidelity. And I loved my clients. I loved my office. I loved my boss. I loved my assistant, my entire team. I mean, it was a very cushy and very difficult situation to leave. And on top of that, I had only been back for one year. So these are a book of clients that I had who have only been with me for one year. And so that was an extremely difficult situation in that I felt like if I left, first of all, I'm leaving clients that just turned over to me. And second of all, I would be leaving Fidelity in a crunch in the way that it would be bad for business continuity for the branch. And everyone in the branch, sure. as you can imagine, um, in each branch has their own personality and they each contribute something different, right? So my kind of specialty in this particular branch that I was at, which is Houston Memorial at the time, this thing, thing that we have called Wealth Advisor Solutions, which is where you refer Fidelity clients to outside advisors on the network. And we did this a lot in California and they don't do this a lot in Texas, which is why I was really good at it. And so in my branch, I led the branch in that initiative and the branch is graded on multiple things. And this is one of those things. So if one person who's good at something leaves, then you have that hole, right? True. So I was concerned about the branch and their continuity. And so in making this decision, once I knew that I was supposed to do this, I also kind of trusted that everything else would fall into place. And I think a lot of times when we're making hard decisions or big decisions like this, when you know the right thing to do and have peace about it is when you know everything else will fall into place. And I don't know which comes first, whether first you decide this is what you need to do and then everything else falls, or if everything else is already taken care of and then you realize this is what you're supposed to do. So for me, it was the former. And when I left, it turns out there was a rep who was in an Austin branch who had been traveling to Houston on weekends, every weekend, because he was, and he was my same age. Exactly. He had a one-year-old at the time I and mean, he had stage four colon cancer and he was coming to Houston for oh cancer treatments every weekend. And he needed a job in Houston. Well, guess what? In Houston, the average tenor for a Fidelity rep is 30 years. <laughs> so if I had not left, he would not have had a position to come to in Houston. Oh, wow. So this was actually the answer to someone else's prayers. So I was really just every step along the way of this process. And that was a, the before the beginning of it, things like that have happened to tell me, hey, this is the right path. And so I'm really thankful for that. And so you started the, the Life and Liberty Index. How did you, at some point, you moved that into an investable concept? I mean, what did it take to make the Freedom ETF happen? Yeah, so once we had the index... I was shopping it around to different issuers because you can't just invest in an index, right? Obviously, you have to invest in a fund. You can't just invest in S&P 500. You have to invest in the S&P 500 index fund or one of them. So I was trying to make this fund that tracked the index happen. And so 
first, I thought that I would license the index to someone like iShares, right? So I talked to iShares. I talked to everyone smaller than iShares and nobody wanted to license this index. I think there was some political aspect of it and there were some mid-sized firms that were interested and we went into discussions and every single time something happened and it wouldn't work out, um, whether it was a terrible deal or it was a, they backed out or something always happened. And so eventually I decided I needed to do this um, on my own. So I need to launch it myself. And being a single mom, it was a difficult thing to imagine doing. But Wes Gray at Alpha Architect basically mentored me on how to do it myself. First, I asked him to do it for me. Right. And then he said, he's like, no, you need to do, you do it yourself. I'll teach you how. And so he basically taught me how toward the end of that year when he was mentoring me all year and teaching me how to do this. I was about to do it on my own. He and I were talking one day and he was like, you know what? Great idea. You should just do this with us. I'm like, like I was suggesting in the first place. <laughs> Did we not already have this conversation? Was this a year long test to see if you yeah, were still going to be interested? Basically. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's how I ended up working with Wes and the team at Alpha Architect. And I could not be more thrilled about that. They have such precision and skill in the way that they manage their business and the way that they manage the fund. I have absolute full confidence that Every time we do trades, every time we rebalance, every time there's a create, that everything is done perfectly. So I, yeah, they're, I, they're, an, they're an easy crew to have confidence in. They absolutely. Really so, so I could not be more thrilled about that partnership. So they are technically the, the issuers of the fund and we are on their trust. And now they do this for like 15 other people, but we are the fund sponsors and the index provider. So you're a pioneer in more ways than one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about the Freedom Fund. I tend to refer to it as the Freedom Funnel. So you start out <laughs> with the 26 emerging markets, right? I like that, the Freedom and then Funnel. You, you like that? Oh, you can have it. I, I, I haven't licensed it. <laughs> so you start out with the 26 emerging markets, yeah. you know, how people define it, I guess. And then you assign a minimum market cap or a minimum country market cap as your first screen. Yeah. So if you really want to get into the weeds... We start yeah, with 20, let's do it. We start with 26 emerging market countries in our universe. And these are currently the same as MSCI uses, right. but we're not tied to that. So at some point, if we decide, hey, Estonia it is now in our universe or Israel is now in our universe, we can. Right now, that's not the case. We are following what, what is standard in the indexing world right now. So we start with those 26 country universe. And then the first thing we do is a market capitalization screen on the country level. So we want countries that are large enough and liquid enough to be a very tradable product. And the way we do this is we, we take a ratio of country market cap to world market cap, and they have to meet a certain ratio and they have to meet that ratio within the last three years, an average of those three years and each of those three years. And each of the three. Yeah. Okay. So, and so in, in general, what does that, when you apply that standard, what does it take the 20 suit? The 26 generally, markets down to. Last year, it took it down to 18. Okay. So generally, it's somewhere around there. And once we get it down to the now eligible universe, right, let's say it's 18 countries, we now apply freedom weightings. And our freedom weightings come from third-party independent quantitative data from the, the, the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute. And these guys compile 76 variables that are freedom variables, and they use also third-party data. So there's two layers of third-party objectivity on here. There are 76 variables encompassing civil freedoms, political freedoms, and economic freedoms. This is the only data okay. set that I know of that encompasses all three 
of those types of freedom. So we have, there's also Freedom House, which we use on uh, one of the rules in our methodology, but it's not the main data set that we use because Freedom House is not a transparent methodology data set. It is a committee. So because they're a committee, they can make decisions faster. And that's why we use them on the freedom momentum decline rule to catch any extremely fast declines in freedom. I see. They're, they're, your, they're your watchdog. Yes. So that they're only on that one rule. Now, everyone else is the main index. So that main index is, is how we get the, the country scores that our algorithm then turns into country weights. Once we get the country weights, the weighting process assigns negative weights to the worst offenders as far as personal and economic freedom. So China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and, and the like will typically get negative weights. And so their weight in the index becomes zero at that point. And it's an iterative process. We go through three iterations typically, but it could be four, it could be two. It just, we, get, we go to as many iterations as it takes to get to the nobody's negative. So no negative weights. I got it. Okay. So the negative ratings, instead of shorting the country or anything like that, you would just exclude them from the buy side rules. Let's say you end up with, now you're down to 10 countries Mm -hmm. out of those original 26 after you do the freedom scoring. And they all have a weight. Uh, And then those are going to be weighted based on their relative freedoms amongst the the more freer countries. So they have, they're going to be... um, based on relative to their peers. So we don't draw a line in the sand. We don't say, oh, here's, you have to be above this particular score. You have to be above 100 out of 162. No, we don't do that. So we, it's only, you have to be above the average of your peers, right? So all the countries in the index are above average compared to their peers, which is the other emerging markets, the other 18 in the universe, uh, in the eligible universe. So yeah, we end up with- Even from that universe, you exclude state-owned enterprises or at least an enterprise where that's more than 20% owned by the state. Can you kind of talk through that? Yeah. Before we do that though, just one more thing on the uh, relative weighting. The reason why we do it that way is because there's no 100% free market. There's no 100% oppressive market, right? So even in North Korea, you have freedom to- walk around, you have freedom to probably have children, you have freedom to, you know, enjoy the sunshine. It's you still have some freedoms. And even in America, we have some oppressive policies. So there's no 100% free or 100% unfree market. And that's why we do it that way. Going to the security level, once you have the country weights, we those country weights drive security weights. So it's a top down approach. So it's the opposite of most market cap weighted strategies where the security weights are driving country weights. And that's why you end up with this massive weight in China because the Chinese companies are the the big companies and there's so many of them. The security weights within the countries, we take the 10 largest, most liquid in each country just to get a a good representation of the market in that country as a whole. And then we exclude state-owned enterprises. And that's just to take the economic freedom theme all the way through. There's no other factors that we put on here. There's no value, growth, any other sides, any other uh, factors because we wanted to isolate the freedom factor on the first product. You could argue there is a size factor. It's the largest companies, but that's just to to get a good representation of the market. And so at at the end of the process or at the bottom of the freedom funnel, how different does your fund look than the traditional emerging market index or traditional passive emerging market fund might look? Active share is about 85%. And that's the, the percentage of the fund that does not overlap in holdings with the benchmark. So the benchmark being MSCI emerging markets, that's the... The percentage that doesn't overlap. So we have 85% of our fund does not overlap with the market cap weighted equivalent. 
the countries that we would expect to see in a traditional emerging market fund, we'd, we'd expect to see 35% China. Yeah. We'd expect to see a, a large share going to India. We'd expect to see South Korea. In, in your fund, South Korea is a is obviously you know one of the larger country exposures, but India and China specifically is certainly not anywhere near in your fund, China zero in your fund and yeah. 35% in the rest of the emerging market world. Yeah. So China is um, going to be the biggest differential. India was in our fund last year. It was rebalanced out this year due to their drop in their freedom score, but they're very on the cusp. So I would expect them to probably come back in future years. And it's not that you're specifically excluding any country. You're just looking at the civil, political, and economic freedoms. and Right. We don't exclude yeah, any country arbitrarily. So it's not like an ex-China fund. We're just using freedom weighting. So it's a natural result of the freedom weighting and whatever gets excluded out of there is a result of that. Let's talk about the difficulties in, in measuring freedom a little bit. I, I would assume that all that the most autocratic regimes would want to promote some kind of ideal of freedom and they might not spend any resources or any time telling us how they're restricting that freedom. How do you obtain the data and how do you operate in a scenario where you're trying to measure freedom? Yeah, so there's different ways of obtaining a human freedom data. And our data providers, as mentioned, have 76 different variables. So the fact that they have so many variables, it really cancels out errors and biases. And that's why they have so many. And they also use sometimes multiple sources for the same variable. So we have 76 variables. You have more than 76 data sources because sometimes they'll use different sources for each variable. And sometimes there's a difference in the letter of the law, what the law says, and what's actually happening on the ground, what the custom is. And they have different ways of measuring that too, because there's, you know. Oh, wow. That's yeah. interesting. So for example, I have a friend in Saudi Arabia, Manal Al-Sharif. She was like the Rosa Parks of Saudi Arabia. She started the Women to Drive movement. Now she's in exile in Australia, but she's always said it's never been illegal for women to drive in Saudi Arabia. Like the law doesn't say that you can't drive. It's the custom. And so this data will catch that as well because they have survey-based as well as other kinds of human rights metrics and measurements. So it'll catch what's the custom as well as what's the law because even China has a constitution. Even they have human rights policies, but that gets broken all the time. One country, two systems is the law in Hong Kong. Sure. <laughs> and we know how that's going. So these are things that, you know, that are measured not only by what's written in law, but also by what's happening on the ground. And so they try to capture all of that. And the diversification and number of variables also cancels out a lot of those errors and biases. And so similar to the way somebody would run a, a scientific experiment, you have all these control systems and different sets of data that... Yes are purporting the same things and they're, they're, they're used as checks and balances on each other. Exactly. And you're looking beyond the actual reported laws into what's actually happening on the ground, the actual exactly. customs that, so the real freedoms that people have, not what they're maybe contracted out to have. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting. Now, how has COVID-19 played out in terms of the countries with the different freedom scores? Have, have countries with Traditionally, more freedoms had more difficulty with COVID or have the the countries with higher freedom scores done better than the more autocratic nations? 
Yeah, this is yet to be seen because there's a lot of really free countries like Australia doing some really crazy things right now, as we see in social media all the time. But again, our data providers don't look at social media or media. They just look at their, their data from the think tanks in each of these places. So this is yet to be seen, but they will continue measuring the things that they measure. What I would expect to see this COVID impact would be size of government, freedom of assembly, freedom of movement of people and goods across borders, increased regulations, and so forth. So I think these are the types of things that we'll see with, with COVID. And these are all variables that are already accounted for in the 76 variables that they use. So it's already part of the system that's being used. And I think that it will be capturing the changes happening due to COVID currently in the next data set. So we'll see. It's still playing out. But certainly, it's and tangentially, we seem to be stuck in this kind of supply chain bottleneck with companies that are rethinking and, and just kind of revamping their entire supply chain, or at least how they source how they source those supplies. Have you seen evidence that the supply chain is moving toward those markets that are exhibiting higher uh, levels of freedom? I actually have, yes, and I think most of that is is driven by a decoupling from China. So due to COVID, a lot of decoupling, which had been going on already, was accelerated. And now you see companies in, especially our markets that we invest in, Taiwan and South Korea, companies like Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung, even like Foxconn, who provides the parts for iPhones, now building a production elsewhere, outside of China. So you see them building in the US and India and Indonesia and so forth. So you see the other markets in the Asia Pacific region benefiting from that, and also some developed markets benefiting from that. Um, and they are typically, I would say, all of them are, as far as freedom scores, higher than China. So, yeah, I do. And these are long term investments that these yes. companies are making. This is early days. They're long not going to build out the supply chain and yes. abandon it, right? Right. Long term and big investments. So, it's definitely a movement that is happening. And, you know, that makes sense. I mean, capital goes where it's welcome and where it's well-treated, Walteristan, right? So it goes where it can be free. And I, th I think that that's a natural, natural migration. Well, and sometimes there's capital inertia too. It stays where it is until it has, a, <laughs> there until is that it has well. a reason or impetus to move. But once that movement started, I mean, it's not very easy to unwind that. It's not very easy to rewind that, yes. that change. So I think that might be something we might not have talked about in terms of emerging market freedoms. Yep. Two or three years ago, maybe, but it's one of those tangible things that I see where this, this process really marries itself to the way businesses are looking at their, their bottom lines going forward. So I thought that was an interesting, it's interesting to see that start to play out in that way. Absolutely. And you're closing in on the hundred million dollar assets under management, Mark. I don't want to jinx you, but I mean, <laughs> Yes, we are. That's a tremendous accomplishment <laughs> in any environment, but really commendable in, in the midst of a global t pandemic. What would you attribute that success to? Because it's not very many startup ETFs that make it to that $100 million level. You know what? I attribute it to investors like yourself. So people that saw the benefits of freedom in the long run for their own investors and invested accordingly, even in the early days, because without getting to $10 million, we couldn't get to 20 and couldn't get to 30 and so forth. And you were there from the very beginning. You saw the, the benefit of a strategy like this and you saw the value of it. And you 
took a chance on it with we we put our money where our mouth yeah. was I guess. And, and that's extremely admirable in the early days because in the early days we are a small firm and we're independent we don't have an army of salespeople. very few people knew about it at that time and for you to have been able to find us and to be able to do your due diligence and, and there were multiple people from your firm doing the due diligence even so far as going to pennsylvania marching with Alpha Architect and March of the Fallen and just getting to know everyone. I think that's extremely, the, people like you, investors like you, who were on the cutting edge of this way before it was cool, right? Now it's the cool thing, right? Because of everything that's happened with China, basically confirming our thesis time and time again. I don't think that will stop anytime soon. But you were there before, before everyone else saw it. And so I think I attribute our success to investors who saw the benefits of freedom and wanted to invest accordingly. Well, thank you. Now, what would your staunchest supporters say is the reason they choose to invest in the Freedom Index? And conversely, I'm sure there's people that you have your critics, just like everybody else, of the philosophy. What would they point to that's maybe the downside of the approach and how do you address those criticisms? So I think our supporters would say that freer markets have more sustainable growth. They have less state-mandated, debt-driven kind of phantom growth. They also recover faster from drawdowns because they're more flexible to adapt to market trends and market needs. And we saw that last year in the COVID recovery, right? We outperformed every other type of emerging market strategy during the recovery. And they also use their capital more efficiently, both their human capital and their economic capital. There's less capital flight and capital destruction. And we see capital destruction in many ways in these unfree markets, whether it's, you know, People not being able to be free, being put into camps, or just not having their full freedoms. For example, there's 30 million missing women in China due to the one-child policy. So policies can affect human capital destruction and flight as well. And even beyond life or death, I mean, you've got the situation where you're restricting 30 million of potentially your most talented people from participating in the process. Exactly. And that's the human capital part, but there's also this destruction of economic capital that we've seen currently in the Chinese tech companies, education companies that they're cracking down on. Starting with the end of last year up to now, it's been an endless story after story of dis- capital destruction. And now Evergrande is the big story. In sure, a freer it's market, a parade of capital destruction. Yeah, yeah. In a freer market, you don't see this much capital flight and capital destruction. I think that's what our proponents would say for why they invest in this. And also, the reason why people don't invest in emerging markets in the first place usually is because of the lack of transparency and the corruption in these countries. And this is a strategy that kind of roots out the issue on that. So these are the countries that are more transparent, that have less corruption. In fact, corruption and freedom have a like, almost perfect negative correlation. So it is a, a strategy that captures the highest potential markets in the emerging market space that we believe will be the growth launch pads of the next decade. Because these are countries coming from a very low base, and it does provide you a lot of diversification from the very highly valued developed markets right now, especially the US. It's also nice to make money and feel good about it. Yes. (laughs) So I think that's why people invest, mostly our investors, that's what they would say for why they invest. As far as our- In many ways, you're an entrepreneur, you're an advocate for a cause. You could be actually the face of a movement. I don't don't know if you (laughs) can actually go back to China now, but- I, I don't think that's uh, but you're also a mom and maybe that's the hardest <laughs> role of all, right? How, how do you balance it all? Well, I have a lot of help. I have the team at Alpha Architect 
um, doing the, the fund operations. I have an index provider that's calculating the index. I have these data providers who are the best in the world, econometricians, freedom econometricians in the world, who started the Economic Freedom Index back in the day with the early fathers of the movement. And so I think I'm just fortunate to have this team that make it work. And with a public product, also publicly traded product, once it gets to a certain size, and I think we are there now, thankfully, thanks to investors like you and, uh, and all of our future investors, I think it gets to a size where it maintains itself. So people hear about it from you, from other people who've invested, and I think it's growing more organically now than before. And it's always been pretty organic. Sure. We've always had to grow in a, a very scalable, organic manner because we don't have the marketing budget and that's part of the, the indie life. And I've enjoyed that actually. I've enjoyed just getting to know advisors at conferences. I think is where I met you, getting to know them on social media where you're sure. also active. So I think that's a very good way to meet the newer cutting edge advisors who are doing the most exciting things. And that's where we want to be. So in short, you're another one of those overnight successes that took seven or eight years to uh, exactly seven or eight years to develop. Yeah, I always laugh when I hear people you know, term anybody an overnight success. Like, yeah. just like I wonder how many decades that really hit. <laughs> exactly. But what advice would you give someone who has a similar dream to yours? They're in maybe they're in a good career, but they've got something really special that they want to try. They've got their own unique set of personal obligations and limitations. What factors should they consider before they, you know, decide to leave what might be a comfortable environment for what might be one of more significance? Well, if you consider all the factors, you're never going to leave your comfortable, cushy job. So if I had considered all the factors, like the paycheck I was getting from Fidelity, the flexibility I had at work, my amazing team and my amazing clients, like I would have never left because it just doesn't make sense. Being an entrepreneur doesn't make sense from on paper at all. But once you have fire that you can't put out, nothing is going to stop you. Nothing is going to stand in your way. So there's really nothing I can say <laughs> to help someone take that leap or not. But what I can tell you is, no matter who you are, even if you're a mom or, or you have all these other seemingly insurmountable obstacles, you will be equipped to do it if you were called to do it. So if that is what you decide is your purpose, you will find a way and you will have a way. There will be a way. So if the fire is if the fire is strong enough in you to allow you to ignore reality and all yeah. the factors that you would normally <laughs> make in, in doing a decision like this, you're ready. Yes. So, but, but you'll never feel completely ready. There, it's like having a child. Like you're never really ready to have a child, but just don't think about it and just be the vessel through which it takes place. <laughs> so um, that may be too graphic, but yeah, no, it's something you're never really ready for. Uh, just do it. If you have a dream, if you have a fire, don't put that out, go with it. And you know what? If you fail, you fail. I think I heard Van Eck, Jan Van Eck say that back in the day on the very first ETF bootcamp conference I ever went to, shout out Ian Van Eck and, and Tom Leiden who held that conference. The only thing I remember from that conference, really, well, I remember a couple of things, but one of the things is Ian Van Eck saying, hey, if you have an idea for an ETF, do it. You may fail, but you'll be happy. <laughs> so that's, that's the advice. Do it. You could fail, but you'll be happy. <laughs> if we're happen to have another conversation like this still in the podcast format or however we'll be doing it five years from now, what tangible changes do you hope you can point to if we have that talk in five years? What's your optimistic view of the future? You know what? I hope that all the alpha that we have in 
the freer markets, two things. One, that it's been realized. And two, that it's gone. Realized and gone. Because, and I'll tell you why. Because that would mean that all the emerging markets had become free or free enough and homogenous enough like the developed markets where that alpha is gone. I don't think that will be the case. And if that's not the case, then I hope that some of that alpha has been realized by then. Because it is well, a, a it's a long-term approach. And I think five years is a good time frame to, to test it. Well, it's I like you said at the, beginning of the, at the beginning of the conversation, freedom is always relative. It is always relative. And let's just hope in five years we have more. That's true. <laughs> well, <laughs> we hope to have less dispersion on the downside, I guess. Um, you know, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah. So, more consistent freedom available throughout the world for everybody. Yeah. Right now in the emerging markets, one, that does not appear to be the case in the biggest emerging markets. And two, I don't think that mispricing is going away because it does seem like Wall Street in general, as if you look at the biggest firms, is still pushing to invest in the autocracies. Very much so. And so as long as that mispricing is there and Wall Street continues to not recognize that tail risk that comes from investing in places where companies are not free to act in their own and their shareholders' best interest, but instead have to put the interest of the state first, as long as that mispricing is there and that risk is not recognized by Wall Street, there will be alpha to be had in the freer emerging markets. And we hope we get our share of it. Absolutely. So Perth, thank you very much. <laughs> Love what you're doing. Of course, we were someone who tried to early on understand what you were doing and, and why you were doing it and, and get on board with the concept. And we wish you all the best of luck and thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Perth Toll and her story, as well as the concept of measuring freedom as an investment factor. We invite you to subscribe to A Voice from the Hills on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you access your content. And thank you for engaging with us, because we can only do our best work when you are here to listen.